This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little Welcome to This Little Light of Mine, the podcast where we explore what happens when you teach a child that they are not allowed to love. Here's your host, James Powell. Hello, and welcome to episode three of This Little Light of Mine. My name is James Powell, and I want to thank you so much for joining me on this personal journey of healing, discovery, and possibility. One of the big reasons I started This Little Light of Mine is my belief that we grow, heal, and shine when we authentically share our stories. With this belief, I wanted to use this platform to have conversations with other queer people of faith, trauma survivors, people in recovery, and people hungry for a deeper spiritual connection in their own lives. My hope is that today's episode will spark something inside of you, will open your eyes and your heart to seeing something from maybe another perspective, and even challenge you to bring more of your own personal story out into the light. And I think you'll enjoy today's episode with Father Michael Casabon. Michael joins us for a conversation about what it was like for him to grow up gay in the Catholic tradition. He shares his experiences attending seminary at the Vatican, talks about being outed, being labeled disordered by the church for his same-sex attraction, and what shifted in his life to help him love himself enough to get married to his current husband. But before we get started, I need your help. Have you enjoyed the first few episodes of This Little Light of Mine? If so, I'd love your help getting the word out. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google give priority exposure to podcasts that have the most ratings and reviews. Would you take one minute out of your day to subscribe, rate, and review This Little Light of Mine, and then share with your social networks? Help me send a message of unconditional love for all to as many people as possible. Michael's story is very important to tell, and unfortunately, like many, contains content that may trigger some survivors. In today's interview, we'll be talking about sexual abuse, religious trauma, suicide, and conversion therapy. And I encourage all listeners to be gentle with themselves and proceed with loving intent as they listen, knowing that it's okay to stop and or take breaks. If you're a survivor of religious trauma, sexual abuse, or assault, or a person facing mental health issues related to today's conversation, I strongly encourage you to be extremely gentle with yourself and to reach out to a mental health professional that specializes in trauma. Talking about these topics is important so that we can inform allies in and outside of the church and to reduce the burden of shame that so many survivors wrongly place on themselves. Now here's a little bit more about Michael. Michael Casabon, a native of the Bible Belt in South Carolina, served in parish ministry as a Roman Catholic priest for nearly 10 years. He attended seminary at the Vatican and studied theology and church law at the Jesuit and Opus Dei universities in Rome. He received another degree in theology from Duke Divinity School. Michael now works as an advancement professional in higher education and is writing a book about his experiences and journey towards forgiveness. And now, Here's our interview with Father Michael Casabon. Michael, welcome to this little light of mine. Thrilled to have you here. We met, I guess it was maybe a few months ago. It was back when the world was normal. Yes, the land, yeah, 
BC, I guess it's actually BC, um, <laughs> before COVID. Yeah. And I just remember being so fascinated by your story, by where you've been, the education, the professions that you've had, and also how you think. I remember saying to you, I'm like, wow, I have not had a connection and been able to have like a deep conversation with another gay man in so long. And you just, you just fascinated me. Are you able to share a little bit about your story and where you got to, how you landed in Toronto and where you were before? Yeah, of course. It's a story with lots of twists and turns. Uh, and I'll try to give you the PG-13 rated version for all those listening out there. But Maybe the A version. The A version. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm from uh, Greenville, South Carolina, uh, which is the buckle of the Bible Belt. Uh, for those who know it, uh, Bob Jones University. Uh, the epicenter of Christian fundamentalism is in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, I grew up uh, as a Roman Catholic there. Um, so I was always part of kind of a religious minority. And the Roman Catholic community there is a very tight-knit community. It's a very small percentage. We really had to kind of understand our faith because, first of all, it's just it's an extraordinarily religious uh, area, part of the country. Uh, but we were always... Uh, giving a reason for our faith. We were always kind of engaged in apologetics, which is the defense of the faith and the defense of the Catholic faith. I always was sort of into it, Roman Catholic theology. And I was kind of like a church geek or a church nerd. Even in university, I was uh, head of the Newman Club there. I wore my Catholicism actually as kind of a badge of pride because we as Catholics believe that you know, Jesus founded the Catholic Church on the rock of St. Peter, and uh, the popes are the successors of St. Peter, and the Catholic Church is the one true church. Mm -hmm. And that was really drilled into my head, that the Catholic Church is the one true church, that it is uh, the fullness of faith. And <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> I laugh at that because it's, it's so interesting if you parallel to my evangelical upbringing, and I think I shared this story with you. I remember growing up and moving to a new community and all of a sudden we had a bunch of Catholic neighbors, which was odd. We didn't have that before my third grade and we became good friends with them. And I remember having a conversation with my parents and church members like, wait a second, they do a lot of talk about Mary and their church is on Saturday. It's not Sunday. Are they Christians? Are they going to go to heaven? <laughs> and I remember getting this like, well, if they've accepted Jesus in their heart, but most Catholics don't believe. And I remember just at that moment being like, what? It's interesting hearing from the Catholic side of things that this is the one true religion. And that was kind of my experience growing up in the evangelical church of like, this is the one true religion. And Yeah, no, you guys are heretics from our perspective. So. <laughs> okay, well, we've got lots in common. But, but very, very friendly though. There was a sense of it being um, a very exclusive kind of tribe and uh, one which we were honored to be part of, but you know, which came with a lot, of, a lot of responsibility. I had a sense growing up that I was different from uh, the other boys. I, I didn't take a lot of joy in, in you know, playing the sports that they're engaged in. And uh, I, again, happened to be kind of a little more nerdy or geeky. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time by myself, actually. 
um, a lot of time in my own imagination and my own head playing with uh, my Legos or doing whatever, but it was often just by myself. And so I felt a kind of um, distance uh, from others growing up. I didn't put a name on that for a long time because I have this memory of when I was a little kid and my grandmother went to a hairdresser every week and his name was Tinzel. And I remember being in the car with my grandmother and with her eldest son, my uncle. And Tinzel, I remember, was very, very sick. And this would have been like 1988. Okay. And I remember a conversation where my uncle spoke really, really poorly about Tinzel. And I was so confused because I knew Tinzel was a strange man from my experience. I knew that I knew that Tinzel was sick and he was being blamed by my uncle for his own sickness. And I remember as a little kid thinking, how is it this man's fault that he's sick? And it was only later in life that I realized that Tinzel was dying of AIDS. Hmm. And that he was gay. And that's why he was a little bit different. And the way my uncle sneered uh, and imputed his own guilt, that was the reason for his sickness. I just remember that growing up. And I remember thinking that, you know, there was a certain stereotype of what it was to be gay, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that stereotype was not acceptable. Or I knew that whatever that meant to be gay was not acceptable. And I knew that that wasn't me but I also knew that I was different and I was attracted uh, to other boys, that I was attracted to men. But to be honest with you, I wasn't really out to myself for a very long time because I couldn't bring myself to believe that about myself. And do you feel having that kind of memory, did you change your perspective of life or how you behaved or did you put on a mask? I think I, think I went even further into my, into my faith and I think that's when I began discerning my vocation to the priesthood okay because i knew part of me knew that i was never going to get married that i wouldn't get married and i had to find a cover i guess i mean i i I wasn't consciously thinking that way i think that was somewhere at the threshold below my awakened consciousness that i was looking oh that's interesting i was looking for a way to to conceal this but i mean at the same time that subliminal running away was also met with a desire to make a positive impact and a difference. And it was also met by uh, what I've always felt, which is looking for the deeper meaning in life. So there was a certain convergence of things. So I can't say at the end of the day, I became a priest because I was running away from being gay. It's, it's more complicated than that. Right. But, but I think that certainly was a factor. The first person I told that I was gay was um, a priest that I had 
grown close to. Mm-hmm. In high school, he was uh, in his early 30s at the time, and uh, I was maybe 16. Pulled him in uh, confession. That's one thing that you didn't have to go through. No. Was <laughs> that's what we pay therapists for. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Unfortunately, and I was kind of too naive to know it at the time, but... I want to pause the interview for a second and jump in to focus on the shame and self-blame that many sexual abuse survivors take on and to remind listeners who may have a similar story, reach out to a mental health professional, be extremely kind, loving, and gentle with yourself, and always remember there's nothing about sexual abuse that's your fault. Um, After that, I was being groomed by that same priest to to whom I confessed I was being groomed. And that relationship became abusive um, when I was a child. Oh, wow. But I was very confused because he was like uh, a mentor to me. And I, I, I genuinely loved him. But, and it's a difficult thing to talk about, not because, I mean, I, I, I have talked about it, but it's a difficult thing to talk about because I kind of look back and my 16-year-old self and, you know, hindsight being what it is, think how <laughs> how could I not see how messed up that situation was? Mm-hmm. But the honest truth is, I was I was really a vulnerable kid. I was yearning for friendship. I was I was yearning for a masculine presence in my life. I mean, and I should back up and I should say, you know, my uh, I grew up uh, with with a single mother. Um, she later married and I have a great stepdad, you know, for a long time, I, I didn't, I didn't have a father figure. And so there was kind of a desire for masculine attention and affirmation and affection. Looking back, I, I realized how prime I was for, for abuse. I, I, I still became uh, very, very much interested in pursuing a, a path to, to the priesthood. And I eventually uh, went to seminary. Uh, I was sent to Rome. I studied uh, theology uh, at the Vatican, actually. Yeah, I, it was it was an extraordinary experience, I, I had to say. Um, I met um, Pope John Paul II. I met Pope Benedict. Um, I met all kinds of bishops and cardinals, and, uh, all these kind of Catholic glitterati. Um, I, don't, I don't know if they're really glitterati, but in the Catholic world, they were so is there like a Vatican class of like 94? Like, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in Rome, um, almost every nation um, has their own college in Rome. Uh, so there's a French national college, an English national college. Uh, there's, uh, and then I went to what's called the North American College. Um, which is the actually Canadians and Americans uh, and Australians actually okay. uh, attend this college, but the college isn't actually uh, it's, it, the college isn't an academic place per se. We're, we then go to these uh, universities in in the center of Rome. So I went to the Jesuit University um, called the Gregorian, and uh, others went to the Dominican University. Some people go to the Opus Dei University. Um, I actually went to the Ohio State University too. After I studied theology, I went to study church law. So I've kind of a specialization in church law uh, as well. Uh, we call it canon law. Uh, everything Jesus would have said had he had more time. That's the joke. 
it's actually a really dry, dry, dry subject, uh, canon law. It's uh, uh, all the rules and regulations that basically govern the Catholic Church. So I was really into it, man. Like, I mean, I was, I was, I saw how the sausages were met, were made. Uh, it was uh, quite an experience, but you know, it's still an experience that I treasure. And I have to say, you know, um, I'd say this about Catholicism. It, it really does center around a lot of beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, beauty is a very important aspect to it. And um, beauty is what, what Catholics would call one of the transcendentals. It's one of the um, primary characteristics of God, along with goodness, uh, truth, and unity, um, beauty. And so when we see beauty, wherever we see beauty, uh, it is a sign of the presence of, of God. And uh, that's one of those things that I, I, I keep with me, that I, that I, that I, I certainly still believe that. Mm. It's so interesting hearing you say that, though. My experience, and I'm not saying that that wasn't taught in fundamentalist Christianity, but I don't remember that. And maybe I was just so in my own head, so scared growing up. But it is one of the, as my faith exp- expands and grows, that spiritual connection and that kind of being able to appreciate God everywhere and in art, in literature, in nature from within, like that is all kind of new to me. Well, that's why, I mean, you have the popes commissioning all these gay artists to paint naked men all over the Vatican. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's it's such an interesting thing. I mean, um, in many ways, the Catholic Church has this conflicted personality. One way we celebrate beautiful naked men. Um, And then on the other hand, um, we shame gay men and we tell them that, you know, if they act out on their desires, they aren't worthy to receive the sacraments. They're not worthy to be married. They're not worthy to participate fully in uh, the life of the church unless, you know, they shun their so-called same-sex attraction, uh, which is a, a, a terrible clinical kind of uh, description uh, because it makes one's orientation sound like a disease. Mm-hmm. I had other seminarians and priests, they tell me, I struggle or I suffer with SSA. Mm. I mean, it sounds like they've, they've just been diagnosed with something. It sounds like they've just been told by the doctor that they have this terrible disease. I'm sorry, sir, you're in your third third stage SSA, you know, things aren't looking good for you. Um, <laughs> I've never heard the, the acronym used for it, but I cringe whenever I hear somebody substitute gay or queer or LGBT with same-sex attraction, because it's just, it takes me back to the days of Exodus International and the whole conversion therapy world. I never thought of it as a disease, but as you say it that way, I'm like, yeah, completely. But it's not a thing. It's something that you're choosing. No, it's not like I'm attracted or I want pepperoni on my yeah. pizza. It's, this is who I am. Right, exactly. Well, I mean, to your point, too, I mean, shortly after I was ordained, um, I was outed by someone that I went to university with. So I was sent to a monastery for months and months. And I was sent to one of the the leading Catholic psychotherapists in the States who was a priest who had his own talk show on uh, one of the Catholic networks. 
I don't, what is the Catholic Network? I've never even heard of that. It's called EWTN. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's uh, based out in Birmingham, Alabama. And this priest was uh, the author, prolific author of all these books. And he, along with another priest, founded a Catholic organization called Courage, which is basically the Catholic version of Exodus International. Hey, it's James here again, just jumping in for those people who are actually kind of lucky if you don't know what Exodus International or Courage is. What he's talking about here is conversion therapy. It's a completely debunked form of spiritual and psychological trauma that is still practiced across Canada, U.S., and around the world. It's based on the false belief that one can pray away the gay and have God control your sexual urges and impulses. The American Psychological Association now condemns this practice as being completely false and shows how its manipulation leads to major mental health issues, including depression and suicide. Thankfully, governments across Canada and the United States are starting to step in to ban this hate crime. Now back to the interview. Uh, I spent uh, months and months and months and months with him, praying the gay away, I suppose. Uh, but he, he actually approached it from a clinical perspective, and their thesis was, or their diagnosis, I should say, my SSA, stage three or stage four, <laughs> was, uh, you know, they felt that because I was lacking a father figure and because I wasn't able to um, identify with boys my age growing up. Well, I'm laughing not at you because so many parallels to what you're talking about to the Christian experience. Yeah, sure. And I remember growing up in like James Dobson and Focus on the Family. It was, this is why you're gay. Yes. The absentee father, the overbearing mother, you're touched, you're something. And my parents and I, sadly, well, it's not sad anymore. I joke about it now. When I first came out, we always used to, my parents were obsessed with finding the source of my gay. Yeah. And it's like, was it because of this? Was it because of that? It sounds so similar to what you're talking about, but I'm curious. What's the difference between stage four and stage three SSA? <laughs> well, I just made that up, actually. So, Oh, okay. I was like, do they really have degrees of how maybe gay you are? <laughs> oh, no, but that, I, I feel like that's I mean, if they're going to classify it as a disease, I feel like there should be different stages to it, right? I mean, I think we should. I think we should define what stage one through stage four is, and, you know. I think we should make that up for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how flaming uh, are you? How SSA are you? There's actually a theory. I don't know if you've heard it, but I mean, <laughs> this is the crowd that they would say something like this, that left-handed boys are more apt to be gay or to experience SSA than right-handed boys. Do you know why? Sports are designed, basically, around people who are right-handed for the most part. And someone who is left-handed growing up, it takes them more effort and more time to learn how to play baseball, for example. And because of that, they cannot immediately catch up with their peers. Um, they are consequently not as athletic as they are at the outset. Um, they often are then become the ones who are picked last for the baseball team or for whatever. And they experience this early alienation due to their lack of athletic ability, due to their left-handedness. That alienation from the other boys in puberty then becomes sexualized and becomes same-sex attraction. You don't know me. Yeah. Are you left-handed? 
I am. I'm like, you just told my life story. Well, there you go. See, you have, you proved <laughs> true. So you must be a stage four. I, 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 I <laughs> it's funny. Like, it's funny and it's not funny because I remember reading things like that. And it's that plausibility. And as a, as a child or as somebody that's so desperate for a answer out of that, I don't fit in why, what's yeah. going on. Like you read those things and it does play with your mind. Right, right. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I should certainly, maybe there's some insights there, maybe, but I, I, think, I think the issue is that their, their whole approach actually it doesn't heal the sense of alienation. It actually intensifies the experience of isolation because you do end up kind of feeling like a leper and you end up feeling like you're defective. Um, the word in Catholic theology or Catholic canon law is, is disordered. Catholic theology would never say that the person is disordered, but that they would say the desire is disordered. That word disordered isn't used for anyone else, murderers or rapists or swindlers or people who oppress the poor are not called disordered but people with same-sex attraction are called disordered i mean this is why you see this happen all the, all the time in america maybe in canada too where these teachers they find out that these teachers at catholic schools have entered into a civil union or a same-sex marriage and they get fired from their jobs um, they don't fire people who have affairs. They don't fire, fire people who get divorces. They don't fire people who, you know, don't give a damn about the poor. They don't fire people for violating any other kind of Catholic tenant. But my God, as soon as you enter into a committed relationship with a person of the same sex, um, all hell breaks loose for them, literally. So there's, there's, such, there's such an unmeasured approach to the issue of homosexuality in the church. And it's, and it's become politicized too. And a lot of Catholics and a lot of evangelical Christians, they don't know the difference between um, political issues and moral issues. And all of this stuff often gets conflated. And in, in this universe from which I come, um, to be a good Catholic is to be against abortion, contraception, and same-sex marriage, and or for limited government and our Second Amendment rights. I mean, that's also somehow conflated into it too. Like, you know, it's it's, it's really a perversion of Jesus's message, mm -hmm. and, and that's what's that's what's so sad about it. Because when we were talking earlier, we were saying Jesus's message is that God dwells in you, and God lives in you, and God makes all things new in you, and God rejoices in you, and God loves you. And somehow that's lost in the translation of it all. And I think that's really sad. Uh, because I think now more than ever, people need to hear that. But absolutely, it's getting drowned, you know? Well, and I think when you talk about being disordered, I think that's where terms like that are so damaging because you start to believe, well, God doesn't love me. I'm disordered. Right. There's a mistake. There's something broken. How did you even get through that? Like being in that environment 
How many months did you say that you were there? Almost a year. Wow. At several points in that experience was suicidal. Um, and the only thing keeping me from killing myself was knowing how much it would hurt my, my family. Um, but I'm sure if, that, if I didn't have a family, I'm sure I'd probably be, probably be dead. I was thinking uh, about, about this time recently, and uh, I remember that this priest, the priest psychologist, uh, at one point said to me, I think you might be oppressed by, by demons, and I'd like, I'd like to do a, a, a prayer of, of exorcism over you. And I guess I guess he felt. I mean, I, I guess that was his method when his his, his uh, psychological approach wasn't yielding the uh, desired results. I.e., I'm still gay. Uh, he decided it was demons, and um, and how did they know that? Like, did they check in every like fourth week on of how like, how, how the they know that I was still uh, attracted? Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Remember, in the Catholic tradition, um, we're expected to go to confession. We're expected to go to regular confession to the same confessor. Um, and in a context like this, there is spiritual direction. Um, and to lie or to prevaricate in that kind of setting uh, is itself a sin. So... And I was very scrupulous. I, I was very uh, aware of the gravity of lying or omitting something in confession. Of course, I was a priest by mm-hmm. this time. So, so I was very transparent, and I've always been very transparent. And I think I was also really transparent because a, a big part of me still trusted the church and still trusted the representatives of the church. Uh, despite everything that I've been through, um, I believed that priests were um, were very special. This is this is another issue and problem with Catholicism as it is now is that priests get a lot of cover because people don't question the priests because the priests have this kind of quasi divine air around them. And one of the reasons that abuse proliferated in the church for so long was because it was a grave offense or a sin to even question father. And that created a huge power differential for a very, very long time. Yeah, I'm sure that would. I didn't realize that. So, yeah, so that's how they know. I, uh, I eventually was, uh, was sprung from that when we got a new bishop. I went back into parish ministry for a couple years, and I eventually went to uh, Duke University to uh, do another master's degree in theology. And during that time, I got a call from my father's wife in Pittsburgh. And my father's wife told me that my father, who at this point had been estranged for a very, very long time, uh, for me, uh, he's the one that I didn't grow up with. He was my biological father. Right. Um, that he was dying of cancer. 
remember he's the one sort of I blamed for not being there. Mm -hmm. And in a way, he's the one I blamed for my being gay. Oh, really? Okay. Because in my days of Catholic therapy, they're like, yeah, of course you're gay because you didn't have a father around. Or of course you have SSA because you didn't have a father around. And they explained in very clear cut kind of uh, way that this is a textbook open and shut case of a fatherless boy who ends up seeking masculine affection and affirmation through other men because he doesn't have a daddy. And I kind of believe that and I kind of internalize that. As I hear you talk about that, it's almost like you externalized that hate. Yeah. Where for me, I internalized it because my father was around and he was caring and he was loving and he did provide. And so I was the problem. It was me that was doing all those things. So it's interesting to hear. I, I don't think I've ever talked about it, this to anyone on externalizing that blame yeah. on yeah. someone. I was trying to understand why I was the way I was. It's, that's another, I think, reason that I entered the priesthood also. It was not just because I was fleeing from something, but because I was, I was, I was running to or I was seeking uh, to understand myself, identity, you know, identity in Christ, identity in God, identity in the church. I always want to know why I am the way I am. And, and that was a pretty easy, easy answer. So anyway, I decided to go up to Pittsburgh and to see him. And I was really kind of self-righteous about it all because I was sort of like, he's actually the prodigal father, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to go up there. And I am going to anoint him, that is, to give him last rites as a priest. And I will be the one, isn't this ironic, that I will be the one as his son to reconcile the prodigal father back to God, as if I'm the instrument of grace, I'm the instrument of God, and my father who has been away, who's been absent from me, who I've been blaming for these things, he's the one that needs to be reconciled. I remember I got there and. I was very nervous, actually. And I was wearing my clerical outfit. I can't. We're going to have to put on the website a, a side-by-side -side picture of you not in your collar and you in your collar, because I can't picture you <laughs> in the collar. Oh, no. I, well, I wore black. Right. I, I wore black. I was trying to, like, evoke it. You look normal, yeah. is what I'm saying. I always kind of have these images of priests being, like, scary. I look much scarier in it. It's, it's <laughs> I even wore for Halloween two years ago. I get there and I remember walking into his room. It was kind of a ghastly sight because he had esophageal and throat cancer and he hadn't been able to eat in months. Oh no. And so he was probably less than a hundred pounds and I was a six foot guy and he was just emaciated. He was skeletal. And I anointed him. I gave him last rites. And then something within me compelled me to come out to him. And this, by the way, is at a point where I'm not even comfortable saying that word gay in reference to self. How old are you? I was 30. Okay. I said, I, I want to tell you something. 
I'm gay. And he was very, very quiet. And I will remember this to the day I die. He summoned a week's worth of strength and kind of gestured for me to come closer to him. And he just threw his arms around me. Wow. And he whispered in my ear, I love you. My gosh. And then he said, as I'm wearing my clerical Roman collar, he said, now go find yourself a boyfriend. And I just wept. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to cry now, too. I didn't know where that story was going to go. So here I was thinking that I was the one to bring grace to him. Right. And, and he was the one, actually, who brought grace to me. That's interesting. It's such a reversal of everything. It's like he is the outcast. You're the one in authority. I think that is, is always going to be one of the most beautiful moments of my life. I mean, it, 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 it was the realest moment I ever had with my biological father. And something changed when that happened. Because now I knew that my father loved me and my father accepted me. And nothing else really mattered anymore. And, and by the way, I hadn't come out to my mom yet, but I knew my mom. I knew my mom would love me no matter what. That was never, mm -hmm. that was never an issue. Okay. But the issue was me wondering about acceptance from my father. And it was funny, after that was done, I, I, I was a lost in my song. Until a few weeks later, I came up and I did his funeral. I found out from another priest who happened to be there at the funeral that in his last years, my father had become involved with the local parish. He created a nonprofit organization where he was providing farm fresh, locally grown fruits and vegetables to poor people uh, who otherwise couldn't afford good, nutritious, healthy food. Also at the funeral, I met like half of my family that I've never met before. So it was a very surreal experience. But it was a very beautiful experience, and, and, and sort of everything changed from that point forward. And I began to feel more comfortable about living in truth and living in light and telling the truth about myself and my experiences. And how did your relationship with God change through all that? Like, what were the conversations you were having personally? I think I always believed that God was loving. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I look back at like my preaching in, in a thematic way, it was always about, you know, God loves you. And, but I could never turn that back toward myself and say, God loves me. Hmm. And I think the missing piece of that was that experience of being embraced by my father. And when my father embraced me and he said, I love you. And it wasn't a conditional love you. I love you. It wasn't conditional. Like, I love you, but, you know, you know that you need to be celibate and chaste. It wasn't that. It wasn't, I love you, but this is what you need to do. It was, I love you, and I love you, and go find yourself a boyfriend. It was this expression of unconditional love from my father. And father is, by the way, the same word that I would have used for God. I mean, I, I no longer believe that, you know... Uh, God is exclusively Father. Obviously, God is 
gendered. Yeah. Uh, God is not gendered, and God is all genders at the same time. But mm-hmm. you know, Father is what I would have referred to as God, and so to have my Father hug me and say to me, "I love you" in an unconditional way, is what also Catholics would call a sacramental moment. A sacrament is an outward sign of interior grace. And that was one of the most important sacraments in my life was my father hugging me and embracing me and, and telling me to go live my life, basically. Go live your life in freedom and, and be who you are and be proud about who you are and let your light shine. Um, again, all of this was sort of part of my own preaching, but for other people. Yeah, I can relate to that. I don't know if my conception of God changed at that time, but I felt that the love that I preached about, that I was now included in that as well. Okay. I think my conception of God has changed, however, um, especially since leaving the priesthood. What was that like to leave? I was traumatic. I was sort of out the door for a long time. Um, I was just too afraid to leave because of the security uh, priesthood. I sort of felt like I was this in this kind of institutional bubble in which all of my needs were taken care of and met. And on top of that, I had been a seminary student since I was 19 years old. I was ordained at 25. I, when I left, I was only I was only 34 when I left. But my entire life had been sort of lived within the institutional church. I didn't really know anything other than that. How does that work today? Do you get like a salary? Do they just take like, how does all that figure itself out? Yeah. So, I mean, we do. I mean, diocesan priests, the kind of priest I was, we take promises of uh, celibacy and obedience to our bishop, but we don't technically take vows of poverty, even though we don't make a lot of money. Um, but yeah, but I, I, I drew a salary and, uh, you know, I was comfortable and it was what I knew. Mm-hmm. But I think more than that, more than the monetary thing, it was my identity. Right. I mean, it was the way I interacted with people. It was my persona. It was my, it was my drag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I was a priest. People called me father. That was one of the things I had to get used to, actually, when I left the ministry, of not calling myself Father Michael and just Michael. And, and hearing other people call me Michael, it was actually kind of strange. But I had to figure out who I was again. Uh, because I never really had had an opportunity in my early 20s to develop an identity outside of this vocation to the priesthood. Leaving was very traumatic also because there is a certain dualism present in the Catholic Church where you're either Catholic or you are in a really bad state with God, basically. Uh, And there's no sort of (laughs) in-between. So to reject the institutional church for a good Catholic is to reject God. And so there's this, there's this intermingling or intertwining of God and church. Even to say, for example, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's something that Catholics say every, every Sunday during the creed, during the mass. So, so right after you say, I believe in the Father and I believe in the Son and I believe in the Holy Spirit, you're saying, and I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And, and these realities get so kind of intermingled um, from such a young age 
that there is this, this binary on, off, black, white. You're in or out. All or nothing, yeah. And once you're out, you're out. And once you're out, you might as well consider yourself to be now the prodigal son mm-hmm. uh, on Team Satan. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really hard thing to, to navigate or negotiate. And so... And how did you work yourself through that? Very, um, very gradually. And I'm still working myself through that, I think. I think it's only been recently that I would even be comfortable about talking about my faith anymore or that I would feel that my faith has been kind of rejuvenated, which, which I believe it has been, actually. I feel closer to that which we call God now than I think I ever have. And it's a, such a strange thing to say because I feel like I'm not, I'm not allowed to be able to say that because I'm... I'm I'm married to a man, and like that's such a bad thing in the Catholic Church. <laughs> like I'm literally I'm literally being defrocked for that right now. I haven't technically been. It's the word they use is laicized, but I'm actually technically being defrocked for being married to a man. I mean, to give you an idea, they don't even defrock some child abusers, but wow. <laughs> but God forbid, really, God forbid, yeah. God forbid you get married to someone of the same sex. That's that artificial voice, I think, that was sort of put inside of my head by growing up in this environment, in this culture. I struggle with the same thing. I can hear some of my fundamentalist teaching of like, well, that's the, the voice of Satan whispering in your ear. Or that's the voice of God telling you. And it's, it's very manipulative based on... Yeah what other people think is right or wrong. How do you distinguish that for yourself? I think what a lot of people call God is actually an extension of their own egoic desires and fears. Okay. So oftentimes when you hear God says, or God says you should do this, or God says you should do that or whatever, um, what they actually are talking about is what they think that you should do from their own sense of self um, whether it's their individual self, their collective self. Um, it could even be uh, not just like the ego of one person, but a collective ego of a culture or of a nation um, or of a church community. Um, I don't believe anyone can say to anyone else, God is telling you to do this. Uh, because but It's funny. I remember this at a church where the church leadership was meeting with members and praying over them and giving them their spiritual gifts. This is what God told me, your spiritual gift. And, I, and I, I don't, I'm not here to say that that's true or not true or whatever, but I just remember thinking that's so weird. It's like, well, how do you know what their spiritual gift is? Yeah. And like the business part of me is like, oh, that's really smart. <laughs> I'm like, I need this done. God's saying, look, it's a perfect match. Yeah. What, what is your thought on that kind of thing? If we affirm that God is real, uh, we also have to affirm that we can never fully um, understand God. Because as soon as we say that we understand God, God is no longer God. God is a creation of our own imagination. God is a creation of our own rational thought process. Um, and God is always, if God is God, God is always more than that. Uh, you know, can we get a sense, each of us, of what God wants? I think we can, but 
I think we have to be very, very careful when we do that. I mean, literally, if someone came up to me and they said, I think God is telling you to do this or God is telling you to do that. I mean, I would yell fraud right away now. As I say this to you, I'm hesitating because I'm, I'm wondering, you know, did I ever do that? Did I ever say God is telling you to do this or God is telling you to do that? I don't know if I said it that way. Um, I, I think I might have said something like, you know, God is telling you to accept yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. I think when we talk about spiritual things like that, especially with someone else, um, we have to be very careful not to be presumptuous. And we have to be very careful not to commit a kind of spiritual abuse over someone else by, by vicariously adopting for ourselves the voice of God for someone else. I think that can be very, very dangerous and very manipulative. I am hesitant about religion generally, even as I see God, is that there is so much potential for psychological and emotional manipulation of other people. You know, religion is sort of like nuclear power. Like, it's great clean energy. It's fantastic. But, you know, it can also uh, destroy every human life on the planet if if we misused it. And, uh, and especially to children. And especially children. Especially children. I mean, maybe there should be a law where, you know, we don't introduce human beings to religion until you know, they're of age, like alcohol or something. <laughs> I don't know. I said that to, to members of my family. It's interesting how people ban people from going to a movie that's rated R because there's too much violence in it. Mm-hmm. Yet that same eight-year-old is sitting in church services where they're learning about how they're going to die and go to hell because of their same-sex attraction. Yeah. And how they internalize that and turn it into hate. and as adults, we can have the, those conversations. But I said it to one of my family members, you know, everyone is free to believe whatever they want. Right. And you're free to teach whatever they want. Uh, my brother is a, uh, a Baptist minister. But put an NC-17 rating on the outside of your doors. Because if you're going to be teaching this kind of hate, children can't be in that environment. From my perspective, some of the things that I have experienced and kind of hearing you share and so many other people share, it is psychological, mental, emotional, and spiritual abuse. Right. It is. I mean, it, it, it really is. And I think we have to be really, really careful about how we talk about these things in front of, in front of children, because you never know what children are, are absorbing, you know, from these conversations. And um, just, you know, the conception of a God, too, that sends people to hell for certain things, I think that creates also an experience of another dual, a dualism in the world, that some people are good and some people are evil. And as soon as you introduce this idea well, that some people are evil, then you dehumanize them, you other them, and you can justify any kind of atrocity against them because they are other. There's a, there's a very famous prayer in the Catholic Church. It's um, actually it's a prayer I used to recite all the time because it's uh, called the St. Michael the Archangel Prayer. And uh, it, it's, very, it's, it's very stirring because it... it, 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 it it calls forth God's power to defend us and protect us against evil, which is great. But the last line of it is this, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who prowl throughout the world seeking the ruin of souls. There's one problem with that, and that is that God created Satan um, because God created all things. And the idea 
that God as creator would cast one of his creatures, even the devil, into an everlasting abyss of torment and torture. If God can do that to one of his creatures, then what am I permitted to do in my own life? Mm -hmm. I think there are elements of that kind of dualistic approach um, where we allow this notion of, of othering others, of casting others as evil, um, as casting others as different from us. And I think it might seem innocuous, some of it, but I think it's actually planting the seeds for um, a really problematic worldview. Yeah. Because it's hate. Yeah. And it's exclusivity, not inclusivity. Yeah. I have a new, I have a new model of God, and this is where, this is where I become a heretic. Um, James, the uh, and but going back to Saint Michael, the traditional view of Saint Michael is, you know, he's the archangel and he's this big, beautiful, muscled man with feathered wings behind him. Uh, so lovely iconography, by the way. I highly recommend <laughs> Google it. Uh, and he's standing atop Satan or dragon, uh, the dragon or the serpent being a sign of, of Satan or the devil, um, thrusting a sword into Satan. So all kinds of iconic iconography going on there and again it's 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 this winged angel destroying in battle uh, this serpenty dragony devil this notion that god brings together actually the opposites mm. into a point of harmony so rather than this image of this dualistic battle between good and evil that just goes on and on and on it's this recognition that there certainly is diversity, but it's a bringing together of that diversity. And that's exactly what God does. He brings together, God brings together diversity into unity and overcomes duality, uh, which, I th which is why I still think that the Trinity is a beautiful image of mm -hmm. God. And what I like about that imagery is how uncomfortable that duality is. It doesn't mean that it fits naturally. It doesn't mean that it feels good. It doesn't mean that it is... Uh, because I think I was always trained or to look for like what's comfort, what's certainty. Right. And those shades of gray aren't comfortable. Right. And I think it's easy to say, well, no, you're wrong. You're evil. You're bad. You're up. Because you don't have to think. You don't have to. You just put them in the box and then you can close that away and throw it away. Yeah. And that's my concern about a lot of people who are now drawn to religion because they're often drawn to religion because they want a sense of security and stability in a world that doesn't make sense. And so they're looking for clear-cut answers. They're looking for ready-made definitions. And they don't want to think, and they just want to put, it's a bumper sticker religion where everything is really cut and dry. And they want ready-made answers for them. And they don't want to take the, the time to question things and to go on a journey and say, yeah, I don't know what that answer is. Right. And, and I think religions that have kind of provided these easy answers to people, um, they're fulfilling a demand in the market. And many of them are booming. Um, but I think ultimately they're doing a disservice to, to not only those people, but also to society more generally. And it's one of the contributions to the ever kind of polarized society in which we find ourselves. It's time for a new kind of approach to faith and to Christianity and to other faiths, 
to emerge, mm-hmm. and I hope maybe it's emerging, where religions don't so much provide these ready-made answers, but religions help people ask insightful questions that open up new horizons and bring new insights, and to accompany people in that journey of faith. Having this conversation and the conversations that we've had over the past couple of months is that duality. I love having them, but there's also a sadness and a yearning for where were you when I was 16? So much of this, I feel, was taken from me. And it's even interesting in the gay community where, not the whole gay community, but the gay community that I took part in. There's a new coming out. How do you have these kind of conversations as gay men? I feel like sometimes I don't fit in other, any world. I don't fit in the Christian world. I don't fit in the gay world. And, and yet I fit in both of those. And it's just, it's, it is, it's uncomfortable. What I'm starting to realize, embrace that uncomfortability and bring all of yourself forward. You know, I was brought up in a, in a, in a church that it was an all or nothing thing. If I left, like, what's, what's the use of, what's the use? I've been cast out, right? And, and that actually makes you angry and it, 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 it motivates you to never you never visit the God question or the faith question ever in your life again because you've been so hurt by it. Mm-hmm. What's the use and what's the point? Because, you know, I've, I've, I've violated this commandment and I'm living my life as an out gay man. And, you know, no matter what else I do, I'm still going to be a pariah. So what's the use? And I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, but that's not the truth at all. Right. And I think that's what people need to be reminded of. But, you know, the churches aren't, the churches aren't helping. Um, certainly the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church is doing tremendous damage to people. Ironically, because I would say anecdotally, I mean, I'm not sure many studies have been done on this, but anecdotally, more than half of priests, at least in North America, are um, somewhere on the queer spectrum. And their own difficulty in doing gay outreach you know, they're afraid if they do gay outreach, people will think they're gay, and they're afraid that people think they're gay because they actually are gay, what that might mm-hmm. mean um, to them personally or to their careers if it's found out that they're gay or that they're friendly to gay people. There's a rise in kind of this alt-right Catholic blogosphere, um, not only in the United States, but also in Toronto, there is... Um, what I would call a, a, a hate media group. Uh, I, won't, I won't name it, but uh, there, there's one in Toronto. And they go after people in the Catholic Church who are trying to build a bridge between the LGBTQ community and you know, official Catholic parish life. And they accuse them of diluting church teaching and things like that. So there's a lot of fear around this whole thing. And not only that, but a lot of Catholics, conservative Catholics, they blame the sex abuse crisis, not on clericalism, not on the power structure, not on the culture. They say it's, it's a gay thing. The gay thing is why we've got pedophilia, which is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. So, I mean, you can imagine a lot of people are, a lot of priests and bishops who are gay um, are so, so fearful of, of coming out. Yeah, completely. But so many of them are. And then some, and then some who, who are also experiencing that sense of God rejects me because I'm gay, or I reject myself because of that. And then that internalized re- rejection is externalized to other people, and it's projected outward. 
or their preaching of the gospel is filtered through this prism of, of self-hatred and the lack of acceptance. And it poisons people. It's a poison to people. I think the solution is just to keep talking about it and to be really compassionate, even to those people who are, even I would say compassionate to people who are preaching hate. Because mm -hmm. if they're preaching hate, it's probably because they're, they first hate themselves. Uh, what people put out there in the world is external manifestation of what I feel in, inside of myself. So if I really love myself, if I really accept myself, um, that love and that acceptance is going to radiate outward. Uh, but if I don't, then that rejection of self and that hatred of self is also going to radiate, radiate outward. That's why Jesus says, love, you, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But that means you first have to love yourself. Like, if you don't love yourself, then how are you going to love your neighbor? And how are you going to love God? Yeah. And that's, I think, part of my journey in doing all of this. And, and that's where it's scary and it's sad to kind of say, like, yeah, I'm learning to do that finally in my 40s. And I don't want other queer kids having to wait till 40 to figure that out. Early 40s. Er, yes, early 40s, early 40s. What's next for you? Where are you being called to now? So I'm trying to take advantage of this pandemic that's going around. Um, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the Black Plague. So, oh, really? No, I didn't you know, know. These pandemics. So I'm writing the next. No, I'm not writing that. Uh, I'm not writing. <laughs> but I am. I, I, I for a long time I've been wanting to um, to talk about my story in uh, in a book. I kind of had to do a lot of interior work before I was able to put that on a page, uh, because there was a lot of um, lingering anger. I think toward toward the official church. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm just learning now to, to forgive um, them and to be a person of forgiveness, not necessarily because they deserve forgiveness or whatever, um, but because it's what I need to do for myself. I need to let it go for myself so that I can live free and that I don't, uh, unless I forgive, I'm dragged into the past and I don't want to live there. I, I, I need to live in the present moment, but in order to do that, I need to forgive. So. And I need to be compassionate, and, and we need to be compassionate even to those who, who have hurt us um, because they themselves are hurting. To understand reality from their perspective, I think, I think is, is very important, and it's a struggle to do that, and that's probably one of the hardest things in the world to do, but I think it's, I think it's necessary. So, you know, I'm trying to do that and uh, to allow... You know, to, 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 and to accept myself means to accept also all that has happened to me in my own monastery. And I think that mm -hmm. means, um, for me, it's very important to become kind of uh, an alchemist, uh, which means to say transforming those experiences of suffering um, into gold and uh, bringing forth from darkness light. Because I do believe that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it and will not overcome it. Yeah. And so I'm trying to live that. Nice. That's beautiful. Do you have a working title for your book yet? Uh, no, but I think my main character would be named James. I think. Oh, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> well, I can't wait to read it and have you back on to uh, talk about your book. So in wrapping up, I've got uh, five rapid fire questions for you. Yeah. How do you define God? I define God as the ground of all being and ground of my personal being. Nice. And our deepest selves. If you could go back and give your eight-year-old self some advice, what would it be? I would tell my eight-year-old self that he's loved more than he can imagine. Yeah, and I go back to the story about your father. Like, imagine your eight-year-old self had that experience. I think once you know that you're loved and that everything's going to be okay, then you find a certain freedom in that to, to live to live and to be loving and to be generous. And but I think people are generous when they know that they're going to be okay and they're going to be taken care of no matter what. And so once they know that, once they feel safe, then they are free to kind of overflow. Actually, when we, we believe that we live in a world of superabundance, which is the world that Jesus was trying to teach us about. Uh, this is not a rapid fire answer. Uh, that Jesus was trying to teach us in the multiplication of the fish and the loaves, right? He was presented with this situation of scarcity, and he transformed it into a situation of overflowing superabundance. And he's saying, this is actually the reality that you live in. And so what he's doing is he's not just making more bread for people to eat. He's doing that. He's attending to people's physical needs, but he's actually trying to transform people's worldview. You don't live in a situation of scarcity. You live in a situation of superabundance. And when you believe you live in that situation of superabundance, then you can go forward and be generous with others. Can let go. What's your dream for the church over the next decade? Uh, my dream for the church is for the church to be honest with itself and for the church to return to the basic and fundamental message of the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. What's your top three ways that you practice self-care each week? I, I meditate, I exercise, and I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Nice. If you could gift the world one thing, what would that be? I would like to give, you know, sometimes we have these moments of flash of insight, you know, we call them yeah. epiphanies, that we could just, every single person in this world could have this epiphany that God dwells in them and they live in a world of superabundance and that they can have the courage to live out that superabundance in their own life through acts of generosity and acts of love and acts of forgiveness. That would be pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you. Yeah, this is a great conversation and what I'm so excited about this project is getting to have more of these conversations and it's part of me having the courage to have these conversations instead of dwelling in another place. Like it's easy to go to so many other places as outlets, um, but using my voice in this way and kind of reaching out and having these things, this is totally new to me. This is part of what the church and the world need more of. And this is, this is what it looks like what you do so keep it up well thank you appreciate your time and uh looking forward to much more a very special thank you to michael casabon for joining us here on this little light of mine when i listen back to that interview i'm both saddened and strengthened when i hear stories like michael's i'm saddened because of the all too familiar stories of shame 
exclusion, and hate. Hate from those who hide behind an illusion of the one true way and pretend to be coming from a place of love. When in reality, to so many, it's anything but love. And you know what, when I think back, they're not pretending. The scary thing is they actually think that they're coming from a place of love. But I'm also strengthened by stories like Michael's because it shows the resiliency and courage we each possess when we hold on to what we know is true and move forward from a place of love. And please remember, this journey is a return to love that has lots of ups and downs. So please be gentle with yourself and reach out and ask for the help you need. Speaking about courage and resiliency and following your knowing, I invite you to follow us all month on Instagram at My Light Shines Bright for this month's book club pick, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. In Untamed, Glennon shares her story of coming out, finding her voice, and finding her freedom. I've been blown away by how Glennon speaks so many truths that so many other leaders wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. Join in, add your comments, thoughts, and opinions to daily posts. And don't be surprised if Glennon herself leaves a comment. She's already called me a cheetah. Thank you again for all of your comments, your feedback, your shares, and your likes. I love hearing from you and want to hear more. Visit us at thislittelightofmind.ca and check out our Get Involved section, where you can find space to actually add your voice to this conversation. I look forward to including you on one of our upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening, and remember, you are wanted, you are worth fighting for, you are needed, and you are loved. Thanks for listening to This Little Light of Mine. To learn more about our guests today, and for links from our show, visit www.thislittelightofmine.ca. If you enjoyed this episode or feel that it could bring love and acceptance into someone else's life, please like, rate, review, and share so that we can build our community and bring more love into the world for all people. Thank you for sharing your time and listening to our stories today. And we would love to hear your story too. Visit the Get Involved section of thislittelightofmine.ca to share your voice. We love being in community with you and look forward to sharing more with you next time. Now go and let your light shine bright because you are loved. <laughs>